Hello and welcome to The Property Puzzle, the podcast helping you piece together the industry and your property career. My name is Rachel O'Shea and I represent Charter Hall on the Future Directions Committee of the Property Council of Australia, who is bringing you this podcast series. This season on The Property Puzzle, we are exploring the profession piece. We will be asking our industry experts to talk through their field, how it integrates with the property sector, where the industry is thriving and opportunities for improvement, and finally, how their field is evolving. Joining me on the podcast today is Quentin Jackson, Australian Sustainability Leader and Technical Director at Oricon Group. For those who don't know, Oricon is a global engineering, management, design and advisory company. Welcome to the puzzle, Quentin. G'day, how you doing? Well, thank you. Quentin, you have a master's degree in building science. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about your pathway into sustainability? Yeah, it depends on how long you've got, to be honest, <laughs> Rachel. But, um, 20 minutes. 20 minutes, okay, 20 minutes or less. Look, I actually started wanting to be a pilot in the Air Force um, and I, I studied pretty hard for that. And then, uh, unfortunately, I didn't make the cut from a uh, medical standpoint. But then I uh, got into architecture and building science at university um, and that was my backup plan. Um, and I actually studied architecture, which is how I met my wife, who's now an architect. Um, and then I honestly thought I'm more interested in building physics and how, how buildings perform uh, rather than how they look. Just don't tell my wife that. <laughs> um, and so I did a building science degree in New Zealand um, and that's pretty rare. There's not many places in the world that do building science. Um, and then I realised what I had learnt was how to deliver buildings that, that people will thrive in and also reduce their impact on the planet. Um, and I met with a mate at uni and we said, well, there's not many people out there doing this. This was <clears throat> about 18 years ago. And um, we realised that we could work with architects, so we spent a year working with one architect. Um, and they said, you're really useful, but I can't employ you full time. I don't really see that I can use you all day, every day. So we started a business. I was still doing my master's degree at the time. Um, and we started a business, which is still going in New Zealand now, um, delivering sustainability consulting to whoever would pay us for it. And then uh, after a while, I realised that I wanted to have a bigger impact. And when you're in a small firm, it's pretty hard to work on big, impactful projects like hospitals or um, really large projects that you need a big engineering firm behind you to be able to deliver. Um, and so um, I looked at Oricon and they employed me over a coffee and then I came over here to work on Sunshine Coast Hospital and, and here I am. The rest is history. So why sustainability? What drew you to this field? Why sustainability? What drew you to this industry? I think it wasn't sustainability that drew me to the industry originally. It was just how do buildings perform and how how do we make people perform at their best? And so actually I studied at university. I was looking at productivity um, and looking at how the environment can impact people's productivity. Can I design a better building? That means people are going to be more productive. And then I realised, well, in doing that, um, I can also help make the building perform better and use less energy and less water. And they just got a passion for it and just, just understood that um, even though some people are maybe climate deniers, saying, well, it doesn't matter. I can save you energy and then save you money on your power bill. Are you happy with that? Yep, great. And I'm not happy that that's saving the world. They're happy that they're saving money. So it kind of came from wanting people to be happy and comfortable and, and perform. And then I realised that connection to sustainability and helping the planet, really. That's probably a good segue into my next question. You know, there are a variety of sustainability rating tools around like Green Star, Neighbours, Wells. What are the differences, I suppose, between them and why are they important or, or beneficial? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Rachel. I, I helped start the New Zealand Green Building Council, oh, when was that, about 15 years ago. Um, and, and part of that was that there was a group of us in the industry, and there's a lot of us now, that had a lot of knowledge that was I was surprised that others didn't know. So, you know, architects and engineers and whatnot didn't quite have the knowledge that we had. So starting that Green Building Council was a way of passing on knowledge. Um, and then what we found is greenwash was occurring. And so and that's where... People are making claims without really being able to back it up in any way, and I'm sure you realise in the sustainability industry you, you get seen through very quickly. Um, so the value of a rating tool for me is the independent certification of being able to stand back at, at a point in your project design, construction, operation, and say someone else has independently certified that this has achieved an outcome. Um, and that outcome has been defined by the best of the best in the industry around the world as saying actually this is the pinnacle of sustainability if it's a platinum well rating or a six star green star rating. What we have now, though, is we have a nice set of ratings that Greenstar um, and ISCA, for example, in the infrastructure space, deals with kind of holistic sustainability. Everything from what improves people performance, what improves building performance, how do you use less materials, how do you get to your building faster, those sorts of things. Whereas Well came in and said, that's great, but we really, 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 really want to focus on people. What are the things we can do to make people healthier, more comfortable, more productive, uh, in their buildings um, and I think that's a nice balance we're now seeing a lot of clients saying they want the trifecta of ratings they want a neighbor's rating to prove that their building's actually performing um, the way they designed it they want a well rating because tenants are demanding it they're saying we understand that that affects us directly and we want a green star rating because that delivers holistic outcomes for us because let's be honest if your building saving energy or water does that really affect you as a person in your job every day me it might because I care about it but the person next to me it might not, but the fact that they have fresh air, um, access to you know, views and daylight, those sorts of things, will really affect their day-to-day -day work. So we now have a, a great set of ratings that are being internationally tested around the world, delivering great outcomes on our projects um, that are independently certified. Greenwash shouldn't be an issue anymore. So, Quentin, what are the drivers of sustainability? I know we've sort of touched on what drives tenants to want to get a wellness rating, you know, and its productivity and its wellness with their employees. But why would businesses sort of generally want to go green? And what are the benefits, I think, to landlords as well? Mm. I think you've got you to break it down into the different parts of the value chain. Um, a, as an example, when we built our new office, um, the, the boss came to me and said, I just want people to leave the building healthier than when they arrived. And I went, well, that's a big challenge. Um, and that was because his focus was let's be honest, on the bottom line, because what 90% of the cost of running your business as a tenant is your salary. Um, and his theory was, well, I do want people to be happy and healthy, but I also want them to be as productive as I possibly can, because um, let's be honest, that's how I deliver revenue to the business. So from a tenant standpoint, that, that's kind of a minimum that I'm seeing in the, in the industry. But then we're saying with companies like you know, Oricon and others around the world going, well, actually, we care about our impact on the planet now. Um, and that starts at home. That starts in our own desk, uh, at our own chair. Um, and so we're then saying, okay, well, the buildings we, we sit in, the buildings we operate in, we need to make sure that they are reducing their impact on the planet as much as possible. Then you go to the, I suppose, maybe the, the lessor, the owner um, of that asset who's saying, well, I know that having an asset that is rated um, has uh, longer lease times on it. Um, they are a more valued asset by those tenants in the industry, particularly at the moment we're noticing in government tenants. New Zealand's big on this. We're working on a few government projects where they're trying to lead the way. 
Um, and so there's that, you know, and Gresb is showing us that, you know, those green rated assets have um, a much higher value on them. Um, and I suppose the developer market, those that are saying, look, we want to build an asset for someone to purchase off us um, and, and own and manage long term, they want to be able to show them, well, what are they delivering so that, that that owner at the end of the game can have a longer term asset that, you know, is more valued. Um, and potentially what's coming in now is, is that impact of climate. You know, we're working on some government buildings where they're saying, we're going to be here for 100 years. It's no longer 10, 20 years or 30 years. What are you doing for us to make sure that as climate does affect us in some way, that we can still be here in 100 years? So then you've got to figure out where you are on that value chain and, and what you actually value um, to be able to under understand really the answer to that question. So what are the big trends then in sustainability? You know, are there any projects that you've worked on or that you're familiar with that are leading the way in sustainable design? Yeah, there's, there's a few. The, the biggest trend at the moment is carbon, um, I'm noticing. And, and you're seeing that like in our own building in 25 King Street, um, mm. mass engineered timber. Um, why has that come in? That's come in because we, we've got a good handle on things like operational energy and, and water. Um, they're tough, but we, we start to have a, we've got approaches now that can minimise that. But the, that sunk cost of building a building, that structure, you know, your steel, your concrete, et cetera, is, is ginormous. Um, and so now we're looking at ways, well, how can we reduce that as well on top of all the other great things we're doing? So mass-engineered timber is, is a big change in the industry. Um, we're seeing it. Um, there's apartment buildings now that have been built on mass-engineered timber. There's actually uh, one in Kangaroo Point that wouldn't have been built unless it was built in timber because it's sitting over a tunnel um, the timber weighs less than concrete. Um, that meant that they could build more floors on the building and from a developer standpoint, they could sell enough apartments to pay off the development. Um, and similarly, we're seeing extensions to buildings vertically where they're saying, well, timber weighs less. So aside from any sustainability carbon impact, it weighs less so they can build more. So that's that's one area. Um, I, I think the biggest one is, is people, are, people are understanding the impact of climate, whether they agree or believe in climate change they're saying i know that we're seeing more you know a one in a hundred year storm event is happening every 10 years um, when we were building the sunshine coast hospital we had i think in the three-year construction we had about two or three one in a hundred year storm events and and everybody said to me oh now i know why you cared so much about how much storm water we, we were collecting um, which is about 10 million liters and so we're seeing people say i now understand resilience is a problem um, and how do i deal with that past and beyond what we were doing before in New Zealand, we're dealing with earthquakes, but they're saying that's that's kind of the minimum. How do we now design for sea level rise? How do we design for the fact we know power prices are going to go up? Potentially gas is going to come out of the market. We've got a lot of volatility in the market. So how do we not necessarily generate our own, but be less reliant on the grid um, as much as we were before? The other thing that is becoming a trend is, well, what do we do once we're finished with it? Now, is that we're finished with it because it's no longer a premium grade office building and we either need to upgrade it or, or change of use, is that um, the building's actually, unfortunately, just hasn't lasted and we need to make some repairs, is that um, we need to rip off the facade and put a new one on because it just wasn't designed back when it was designed to deal with the increases in temperature or, or um, wind, etc. that we've got now. So people are starting to think of in new projects, can I expand this building can i extend the building can i retrofit the building can i make turn it into a change of use um, or can i pull it apart and and reuse it or at least be able to pull it apart without using a wrecking ball 
um, and be able to divert that waste from landfill somehow. So those are probably the big things. Energy is still a, a key one, but I think it's a lot harder to respond when you're an individual building to energy issues. Recycling is an interesting um, topic. You know, I think I read something somewhere that, you know, if you're, if, if you're recycling and more than 5% um, is contaminated, they just throw the whole thing out. Mm. Um, and I know, obviously, um, particularly in office, we have a lot of tenants, um, you know, and recycling, I'm sure, is something that we could all strive to do a lot better. How can we improve on recycling both in building materials and, you know, just in the day-to-day? It's really easy. Just don't use it. (laughs) I know know it sounds really simple and, um, you know, the the coffee cup is just a a, a beautiful example. I think you saw, I'm sure you saw the war on waste where he filled up a tram with coffee cups. Um, Just don't use it. And and so that sounds simple, but in practice it's not. Mm. Um, so in, in buildings we talk about well, well how can we just simply use less of the materials when we're building the building um, how, do we really need to build this building as large as it is do we really need all those spaces that are not actually performing a function um, then you go to the standpoint of saying okay well you're going to have to use something so how can we use something that to begin with has recycled content or at the very least is more recyclable at the end of use can we upcycle it and create that circular economy um, like the likes of Interface Carpet have done, where they've said, look, if you pull up our carpet and it's got Interface on the back, we'll take it back. Um, and they've actually improved their processes and use less raw materials because of that circular economy approach they've taken. So we see on projects now, you know, particularly in roading projects, where they're saying, well, can we use you know, warm mixed asphalt? Can we use plastic in our roads? Can we use less concrete? Can we use timber? So that when they are constructing the project, they're using those recycled um, components. Then there's that point at the end of life of, of a building itself of saying, well, can I, you know, can I pull that to pieces and, and reuse, um, upcycle that? Um, can we not deconstruct the building completely and just tweak it slightly? But then you've got that operational phase of a building, which is, is really tricky, really, really tricky. And, and I think I think about Oricon's journey of, of things like, you know, paper. It sounds obvious, mm-hmm. but we moved from an office where we had about 800 people. We had, I think, about 20 multifunction printers We now have four, same amount of people, same size office. We just realised that we don't need a printer on every single floor and we gave people follow me printing and half the time people don't even print out anymore. Then we said, okay, we've now reduced the quantum of printing that people are doing. Can we give them digital tools to avoid the need for printing at all? You know, being able to mark up digitally, give them a larger screen so that they can do their markups on the screen as opposed to using paper. Um, and at the same time, making sure the paper we're using has recycled content. Um, and then making sure at the end of that game, we say, you've had digital tools, you've used this paper, but you've still got paper that you need to recycle. What what can we do with that? That's a tricky one as a building tenant. We have very little ability to influence sometimes what the building itself is doing. Um, and every building I've been in, we, we generally tend to be behoven to more what the council does mm-hmm. um, and what they can pick up. Um, as to what the building can then recycle. Because we've looked at, you know, organics and, 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 you know, can we as a street collect all that? And it's like we can, but then what do we do with it? Where does it go? So I think there's a, there's a in, uh, in a scenario where you've got a large asset pool, say a university, there's a bigger opportunity there to think about, well, we have an ability to have, you know, biodigesters and all those sorts of things that you just can't do in an individual building. 
But when you stand back from it, we've just got to figure out how to use less of it to start with and then figure out can we reuse some of those components later on in another building product or another process so we can upcycle it. Speaking of Oricon, they received um, the first Well Platinum rating. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that was achieved and the process you had to go through to achieve it? Yeah, it, it came from that, that call from the boss who said, Quentin, make this building and make these people healthier when they leave the building than when they arrive. And, and I put on a new pair of pants after that and said, right, how do we do that? And the well rating was, it was not in its infancy, but there weren't a heck of a lot of buildings in Australia that had gone through that, but we were very familiar with it. What we liked about it is it's based on you know, medical research, for example, and the great example is, is the building owner came to me and said, Quentin, do we put in Dyson, you know, hand dryers or do we put in paper towels? And I said, let me, let me consult the well manual. And the well manual has research showing you that um, infection control is much, uh, is, is, is much better when you use paper towels. And I went, that's rubbish. And then I thought about it and I thought, you don't see any surgeons, once they've washed up ready for surgery, using a hand dryer. They all use paper towels to dry their hands. And there's actually research showing you that that actually has, um, is better at infection control. So that then said to us, well, we, I can now sit down with 800 engineers who are going to question me till the cows come home about why we've made a decision. And I can stand back and say, well, here's the world-leading research on why these particular moves we've made in the building are the right ones to make. And particularly so I can say, well, I've given, not just me, the, the whole design team, the whole company, we have given our staff the best opportunity to be as healthy and well as they possibly can. Um, and you know, based on that research that we've seen around the world. And, and what did that eventuate in? That eventuated in really thinking carefully about what actually affects us as humans. Um, and that included everything from lighting right down to, we actually now, what we did before COVID, provide people breakfast. Because we all know not everyone has breakfast. And it was just a simple move. It doesn't cost a heck of a lot of money. But when, that, when we had to pull that because of COVID, the, the, the outrage in the business was high. <laughs> um, because a lot of people found that was just a simple way of being able to get to work, have a little rest with their friends and, and have some breakfast and just, just feel healthier. Um, but it went through to everything. Um, we're a much higher focus on the paint products we used, um, a much higher focus on actually delivering the promise. The difference with Well to some of the other rating tools is it's a, a tested outcome. So you, you design everything, you, you construct a building, you manage it as best as you possibly can, but they then actually come around and test that you've achieved it. So they test that you haven't got too high VOC levels. They test that your acoustic environment is right. And that to me was the, was the, the deciding factor of saying, well, I can stand behind this and say, we designed it and we delivered it. And the outcome is we can now manage it long term. And, and hence the, the well rating came in place. And we spent a lot of time with the International Well Building um, Institute helping us understand the tool, helping them develop the new version of the tool at the same time, which is something we always do when we're working on projects. We like to try and impart that knowledge, impart those lessons of well, what could we do better next time and is what we've done now standard and we should really be pushing the envelope a bit more. As someone who is a angry, hungry or hangry person, um, I can really relate to missing breakfast. Um, you mentioned that, you know, that was something um, covid had an impact on, is there any other um, examples of COVID having an impact on the sustainability industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. Um, there's some sort of, I don't know, there's some outcomes that 
when you look back, you go, it makes sense. But at the time, I was surprised that it occurred. And, and some of them are really simple through to, I have a closer connection to my local community than I did before, because I had to. Um, I'm, I'm much... I, have a, I did before, but I, I try and shop a lot more local because I wanted to support those businesses that COVID was affecting. And, and that was something that I, when you look back, you go, that kind of makes sense. But what it's done is created focus. And it's created focus on things like, do I need a seat for every single person in my office? Because they're not here. Um, and we were, I'd like to say ahead of the game a little bit, but I think it was also lucky that we did this prior to COVID is that we delivered an office that has about a 70% ratio of deaths to people. And how did we do that? Well, we did masses of surveys prior to moving of going, is anyone even sitting at their desk? And the, I think the survey results said, you know, there's some people who live at their desk, some people who there's signs of life, you know, there's a cup there, and others there's no sign of life, there's dust everywhere. And that showed that at any one time we only had about 50 or 60 people 50 or 60% of our people sitting at their desk at any one time. So that suggested that the you know, eight or nine storeys of office that we had, we just didn't need. Um, and we went into a building with three levels of office. So that is now happening a lot more. We're having a lot of clients come through. We've had universities, um, just people looking for a large office space going, how did you deliver a space that's flexible? Um, and that's what I think is the biggest impact on COVID is, is how can we flex? How can we allow people to come in and have a desk and have all the lighting and air conditioning and breakfast um, that they need, um, but at the same time realise that we are unlikely to have 100% of people ever sitting at our desk. What's that meant? Well, there's a better impact on sustainability, right? Because you've got less people um, using less space um, and more focused, so you can focus the attention a bit more. Um, it's also helped us save a lot of energy because all the buildings shut down. Um, and the question there again is, is well, can we learn a lesson from that? Is there something we can we can learn from that? I haven't figured out what that is yet. Um, but the biggest thing is flexibility of how do we create um, a future that is flexible? How do we allow people to work from home? Is there, um, in some of our regional uh, offices in Queensland, we're actually now um, in spaces that are kind of like we work, that, that sort of co-working space where we go, we've only got 10, 20 people. Do we need to rent a, an office forever? Or could we have a space that we can up and down um, with the times um, and so that sort of co-working space is becoming I think something much more valuable to people to be able to do that and I know some companies are crafting buildings that have you know your traditional sort of coffee shops and whatnot on that ground floor allowing allowing the office workers to have close contact with the things they need then they'll have a few floors of sort of amenity space where you know, we've put in um, parents' rooms, we've put in kids' rooms, we've put in wellness rooms now. Um, then you'll have a few floors of co-working space that are, that are sort of part of that building lease that you have access to when you need to, and then the traditional tenancies. That's a, a, a tenant and a developer working together to say that actually better serves our needs than saying here's 30 storeys in a building and you have to rent the whole thing for the next 10 years. So collaboration is obviously, you know, a very um, important aspect um, to you know, driving sustainability initiatives and making sure they work um, in operation. How do you find, I guess, the industry works together? Are there ways we can improve, you know, the pathway towards better sustainability and, and wellness? Yeah, a lot of my job is is not technical, it's people. And, and a lot of that is sitting around a large table with a, a lot of parts of the value chain with different interests and, and different drivers and what I often notice, when it works well, we're all on the same page. And, and whilst our drivers might be different, 
Um, we're all trying to achieve the same outcome. Where it doesn't work is, is where that aspiration isn't there um, and perhaps that, that the sustainability outcomes are more about a marketing ploy than, than actually altruism and saying this actually delivers an outcome. So the, the best advice I can give of how do you make this successful is you need to very early on collectively agree on what the outcomes are going to be um, and, and how you're going to – what part you play in that outcome – and, and understanding that, you know, the, the building owner or the tenant or the engineer all have very different um, outcomes they want to deliver, but actually collectively they're the same. Um, and where that success comes in is where you then have the ability to use rating tools, for example, to confirm and, and make sure there's no greenwash that you've actually achieved that. All too often I sit in a value management meeting at that, that last stage where it's just, you know, you need to take a few million off. And the question is, do we have to? Um, and if not, what's going to happen? And if I can refer back to, well, here were the aspirations that we said at the start, um, that's what we're trying to achieve, and, and this move you're making may not achieve that, and or also you won't be able to get this holistic rating that allows you to, to demonstrate to market that you've actually delivered it. Without those two things, and you can have both or either, um, you're not going to achieve those sustainability outcomes, whatever they may be for you. It sounds like the feedback at Oricon anyway has been really positive. So that's definitely an example um, of tangible, you know, mm. real benefits um, that can be seen by pushing towards sustainable uh, rating tools. Quentin, um, finally, I suppose, just to kind of wrap up, what does the future look like for green buildings and sustainability? Um, are there any advances we can expect to see within the industry in the near future? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, I think the advances that we're seeing are looking outside of your direct impact, so looking outside of the building envelope. So we're now talking with clients about, well, where's the energy coming from? Um, and talking with clients that own either a distributed asset portfolio um, or someone like a university who has a you know um, concentrated portfolio in one place. And they're saying, look, we, we designing a sustainable building, I think we've got that. Um, it's pretty well known and, and the advances we're seeing now are not significant. You know, mass engineered timber was probably a significant advancement but I'm getting asked, well, what's the next thing? I was like, I, I don't think there is because you can only put so much, um, you know, generation photovoltaics on your building because you've only got a certain surface area um, and even then you, you, the, the advances you're going to make on an individual building are now just smaller incrementally. So now we're starting to say, what can we do at a district level? What can we do at a country level? How can we generate the energy um, somewhere else and, and bring that and allow us to play the spot market? Um, some universities are doing that where University of Queensland, for example, has built that massive solar array to say we can't build or we've got an existing portfolio now that we can't really do much with. We can run it as best as we possibly can, but what's the next big change? So they've built their own PV array that allows them to play the market and allows them to you know, basically reduce the consumption off the grid. Um, that's where we're seeing people playing. They're also changing energy sources. You know, hydrogen starting to become up. You know, how do we decarbonise our transport industry? Um, so we're working on a lot of transport projects where we're stepping outside of that original sort of scope one and two emissions that we're used to dealing with, of saying, well, we know how to do that. How do we deal with scope three? Um, and transport's probably the biggest thing. I think our own personal you know, company uh, footprint Paper's tiny compared to transport, um, and that includes us flying and, and whatnot. And COVID's helped us understand that we fly a lot and we don't need to, which is another good bonus, um, only good bonus that's come out of COVID, really. <laughs> um, 
but so that to me that's the biggest the biggest impact we can have is probably in that transport industry which affects everything we do getting to work getting the materials to site to build the building etc well thank you quentin um i definitely think you know something i really took out of um our interview today was leave healthier before you arrive and i think that's a really um, attractive and relatable reason to come into work so thank you for joining us on the puzzle today um, and we really appreciate your time welcome thanks rachel thank you for listening to the property puzzle This episode was produced by the Property Council of Australia's Queensland Future Directions Committee. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you at thepropertypuzzle at propertycouncil.com.au. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes to help other industry professionals find us. Tune in next time for the next piece of the property puzzle.